Why Esther? Well, for those of you who think I'm going to say something controversial today, you're going to be disappointed. You see, when Peter said I can do whatever it is I wanted to do today, I said, yes, this is my opportunity, you see. It is my opportunity to talk about what I love talking about. The thing that I love talking about most. God. My God. Our God. And yes, I thought also, it's about time we spoke about women and showed that women made a contribution to Christianity and the, de and the development of our faith. But most of all, I wanted to tell you about God. And I think in Esther, what we find is a lovely story that illustrates how our God is always there for us, always acting on our behalf. But as I read this chapter, of course, the first time, I was really struck by the horror and the pain of the Jewish nation. I mean, the chapter opens, doesn't it, with Mordecai and the Jews wearing sackcloth. And they're weeping and they're mourning about their fate. Well, I could see why they were weeping and mourning. Wouldn't we weep if everything that we knew, everybody that we loved, was about to be annihilated, brutally murdered, killed? Why? Because the king said so. So of course Mordecai refused to be comforted. How could he find comfort in the knowledge that everybody, everybody, man, woman and child, was condemned to death? So as I read this story, I really began to empathise with their pain. And I was so caught up in their grief that I didn't notice at first. I didn't see that character moving through, weaving through the story, unseen, but always there. Unseen, but making things happen. And it's that character I want to talk about today. It's that character who permeates the whole book of Esther that I'd like us to focus on today. And I'd like to share my thoughts with you today about that character not just in the book of Esther, but in our lives and in the lives of our Saviour, Christ Jesus. In verses 1 to 4, we observe that Mordecai and the Jews, they were mourning in sackcloth and ashes. The Jews were fasting, they were weeping, and they were wailing. You see, they were participating in a religious act, and that included prayer even though it doesn't say so. They were put in their plight before God. They don't mention him. But they were praying for justice. They were praying for deliverance from this evil. And though the author of the book never once mentioned the words God or prayer, we imply that by the fact that the Jews were in sackcloth and that they were mourning. Because we know there are lots of examples in scripture of this type of mourning. Jeremiah, for instance. Sorry, Nehemiah. 
when he heard of the destruction of the wall and the gate of Jerusalem. He said, when I heard these things, I sat down and wept for some days. I feasted, I fasted, I mourned, and I prayed before the God of heaven. Daniel, when he learns of Jeremiah's prophecy, he writes, So I turned to the Lord God, and I pleaded with him in prayer. I petitioned in fasting and in sackcloth and ashes. So when we say that Mordecai and the Jews were mourning and praying, we have a good basis for saying so. Because confronted by such an unjust situation, a situation in which they faced death for the simple fact that they were Jews, they turned to their God for justice. They turned to their God for salvation because they knew that he was uniquely powerful. And they knew that he was the only one able to put right the wrongs that were doing, being done to them. You see, they didn't hesitate to approach him. They boldly and loudly, with weeping and wailing, petitioned their God. I don't know if you noticed, but in contrast, they weren't able to petition the king. They were not given the opportunity to put their case before him. Mordecai couldn't get beyond the palace gate because he was wearing sackcloth and ashes. And the sackcloth and the ashes made him unfit, unclean to see the king. But those same sackcloth and ashes didn't make him unclean to go directly to God through prayer. Even in his sackcloth and ashes, he was able to petition God directly through prayer. Because the Persian laws were made, designed, to prevent the king from being disturbed by his people. In verse 11 we learn that no one, not even the queen, may see the king without being summoned. Because to do so meant certain death. Yet we know, don't we? To all those who believe in him, to all those who have faith, God has given the right to become children of God. And as his children, we can approach him, our father, with confidence. Through prayer, we can directly enter his presence and we can be secure in the knowledge that we are welcome and that he will act on our behalf. And he will act with just justice, with mercy, with wisdom, and with might. God takes care of his people. Mordecai has had faith. He had faith that deliverance would come from God. He doesn't rely on or appeal to Esther's position as queen. In verses 12 to 14, he reminds her that she can refuse to help if she wanted to. But if she does, relief and deliverance would come to the Jews from another place. He trusts, you see, he trusts that God has planned and is able to deliver his people. 
Mordecai even raises the possibility that Esther's position as queen is part of God's providential care for his people. Knowing that this situation would arise, God had put Esther in position as queen so that she could act as his agents, so that she could act as his agent in delivering the Jews from their death sentence. You see, Esther had come to her royal position for such a time as this. When Rosa Parks caught the bus that day, after work, she was exhausted. Her feet ached and she was so tired. She was really, really glad that the bus wasn't full and there was a seat for her and so she could sit down. Can you imagine what she felt like when she was asked to move, to get up, so that a white woman could sit down, purely because the woman was white? Can you imagine the strength it took to say no? She cried out against the injustice of the situation. And in her book, she tells how God gave her that quiet strength on that occasion to say no. And we know, don't we, how her action on that particular day led to the abolition of racial segregation and a whole raft of civil rights for the black people in America. You see, I would like to name that and claim that, that act. I think that shows the presence of our God, our unseen God, acting in our lives. He was at work answering the prayers of his people, bringing justice and mercy. I don't think it's any different for us. Because Jesus tells us, doesn't he, in Luke, that we should not worry. God has taken care of all our needs, not just some of them, all of them. The same God who ensures that all the birds are fed, all the birds are clothed and watered, who do, those birds who don't stress and toil, he ensures they're all right. And how much more valuable are we to our God than those birds. And if we're so valuable to our God, aren't we certain that he's taking care of all our needs? Aren't we secure in the knowledge that we can place everything before him? And that is sorted. God has got our backs. We don't have to worry about it. He has foreseen everything. And he's planned for it. See, God does have plans for our lives. I don't know if you're like me. You're probably not. But I'm a moaner. I moan, you see. When people squeeze that toothpaste tube from the middle. Yeah, you know what I mean. I bet some of you do it. You know, I moan. When I go out onto my patio with the little bit of sunshine we get... What happens? Well, my neighbour, I'm not sure he does it deliberately, always comes out with that lawnmower, making a racket. I'm sure it's deliberate. And I moan. And how often do we moan? 
about our jobs, about our neighbours. But have we considered the possibility that God has put us here in this place and in this time so that we can be his agents, so that he can work through us to fulfil his purposes? Has it occurred to us that he has placed us here for just such a time as this? And yes, I know. I know there are loads of difficulties. I know there are loads of challenges. I know all the situations that we face. And do you know what? God also knows. He knows about them and he has equipped us to deal with them all. We don't have to do much. All we have to do is approach him directly through prayer. All we have to do is communicate with him in prayer. Walk with him in prayer. Draw strength from him in prayer. And you know, he keeps calling us. He's bidding us, come, come into my presence. Walk with me. Receive the peace and the fulfillment that he longs to give us. Let him overcome all the obstacles in our lives. Submit to his will and allow him to act on our behalf and for his glory. Can we do that? See, Esther was afraid. When Mordecai asked her to approach the king on behalf of the Jews, her response was, yeah, right. Are you mad? Do you think this is a relationship based on equality? You know, I go to him when he calls me, not the other way around. And he hasn't called me for 30 days. See, she was scared. She thought she might be out of favour. She couldn't rely upon the king to extend his gold scepter and listen to her and spare her life. Well, she didn't want the task and she said so. She told Mordecai so. And you see, I think that's what makes her courageous. Courage is not being full and bold and certain of what we're doing. Courage is being afraid, uncertain, but trusting and doing the right thing anyway. That is what's courage. It's facing up to the situation, even though we are terrified. Esther risked death, but she accepted the task. And we know, don't we? As Christians, we know that our daily lives require us to be courageous. It's hard to go out into that world and unashamedly profess our faith. It's hard to go out and say, yeah, I'm a Christian. This is what I believe. I believe that Christ Jesus died for us. It's hard to say that. Why? Because we risk fear. We risk ridicule. People are going to laugh at us. Yeah, right. Oh, that's all right for you. That's your truth, but it ain't my truth. We look, risk being stupid in the eyes of others. And what do we want to do? We want to form relationships with people, don't we? 
But forming those relationships isn't easy because it means that we put our very selves at risk. And people can be so hurtful, can't they? We want to protect ourselves. But Jesus tells us that the cost of discipleship is high. Anyone who does not carry his cross and follow me cannot be my disciple. But God offers us that quiet strength. The strength that's required when we face those difficult circumstances, those difficult situations, those difficult tasks. All we have to do is approach him directly through prayer. Can we do that? You see, Esther also possessed wisdom. Having accepted the task, she prepared herself spiritually through fasting and by implication through prayer. She prepared to intercede with the king on behalf of her people by praying and by asking all the Jews to pray as well. She asked the people, her people, to pray to God, to intercede on her behalf. Why? Because she knew. She knew that she couldn't do it on her own. She knew that she couldn't do it in her own strength. She knew that she could not succeed without God. And Jesus, well, he's the example, isn't he? Didn't he prepare himself spiritually? The Gospels record several instances when he retired to pray, sometimes praying all night. And we notice, don't we, that before every major event, Jesus prepared himself spiritually through prayer. Before he chose his disciples in Luke, he spent the night praying. Before he was arrested, he spent the night praying, preparing for the very difficult task that lay ahead of him. Spiritual preparation is essential. It's important. It enables us to face the challenges that confront us on a daily basis. All too often, we fail, don't we, to ask other people to intercede on our behalf we feel a sense of, I don't know, shame, fear, pride. And we allow this to cut us off from our only source of strength. We don't want people to know, to recognize, to realize that we are still sinners and that we still get sorely tempted by all the things that's happening in the world. So we pretend and we hide and we fall into that trap of believing that we can face those challenges alone and we can do these things in our own strength. I belonged to a, a prayer group once when I was first a Christian years ago. And I was amazed that these people were standing there telling each other all the things that I considered to be secret. You know, 
all about their alcohol, all about the work, all about you name it, and they were speaking about it. I wasn't like that. I was accustomed to, well, just telling the minor things that didn't make me look too bad. You know, the odd white lie, you know, the odd white lie that made me look good, you know, it was always somebody else's fault, or I did it on behalf of somebody else. I didn't want to tell them anything that really mattered to me. I didn't really want them to know me. I didn't want them to know that I still do things that are not right. I'm a Christian. And somehow I expected magically that all these Christians were all doing the right thing. But however, as I got used to being as part of that prayer group, as I got used to sharing with them, I actually felt a sense of liberation because we were praying about those things that really mattered to me, to each other, to God. Not those little trivial things that we thought were okay, but the real nitty-gritty of our lives. And I found that truly wonderful. It gave me that sense of peace, that sense of freedom, because it allowed me to open up completely to God. Because if I'm still hiding something from you, it hasn't been dealt with. I haven't accepted that I am still doing things wrong. That I still have faults. And I will always do things wrong, I'm telling you now. I try my best, as we all do. But we're not perfect. And we make mistakes. But what we must learn to do, I think, is to share that with God and with other Christians, asking them to intercede, to pray on our behalf. Because see, Esther trusted. She trusted God way beyond her personal safety and her own well-being. Her final words were, if I perish, I perish. That shows that she's totally committed to God. It's a total commitment. It's the same type of commitment that says, whatever the outcome, I'm going to trust in God. If it costs me my life, so be it. If it costs me a bit of ridicule from peers, so be it. If it costs me a bit of releasing, letting go of that sense of shame, so be it. And it's the same sort of commitment we find in Daniel. When Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego, they turn around and they tell the king that their God will save them from the blazing furnace. But even if he does not, they still refuse to worship idols. And it's that same commitment that we as Christians have given to our God, isn't it? That same commitment. And that commitment is total. It's unconditional. And it's not negotiable. But really, if we are obeying God's will, we're submitting to God's will, we can only truly discern his will by communicating with him, walking with him. Developing our relationships individually, yes, but also as a church, 
with him through prayer. And he's there. He's here now, inviting us to renew ourselves, renew our energies, gain strength from him, put everything in his care, trusting him, discern his will through prayer. So let us together say the prayer that our Father taught us.